Hello. This is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today, it's just the two of us to talk about two different episodes from Deep Space Nine about Frankie and the topic of gender. The episode you didn't know you wanted. Yep. Yep. So the Frankie gender double feature is on the season two episode, Rules of Acquisition, which Memory Alpha synopsizes as Grand Negazek assigns Quark to initiate negotiations with the planet and the Gamma Quadrant, but Quark's new associate is not what he seems. And then the second is the infamous season six episode, Prophet and Lace. Grand Negazek is deposed after he begins to promote female rights. Quark changes his sex temporarily to prevent Brunt from becoming the new Grand Negus. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. Um, yeah, I th- what I'm really just dying to know is what, how, how do, how do, how do you react to this? So the season two episode I liked, it was a bit more straightforward, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should say off the top, for anybody who for some reason has not seen the episodes, but is going to listen to this episode, the season two episode is relevant because it turns out that Quark's new associate is actually a female Ferengi who has disguised herself as a man in pursuit of profit. And I mean, again, that that's relatively straightforward. And I also like the fact that pretty much all the non-Ferengi characters are like totally chill with it. Like, I love the fact that part of the complication is that this character, Pell, also has fallen in love with Quark. What a surprise. Yeah. What a twist. And Jadzia not only picks up on it, but is like, yeah, no, no, you should tell him how you feel. Jadzia hasn't even realized at this point that Pell is actually female. The other one, I'm going to be honest, there are parts of it that made me distinctly uncomfortable. <laughs> I had a thought while I was watching it again. I was like, should I have? I mean, it's not for like, I, I kind of figured it is. And honestly, any time where you have a situation where like a dude has to pretend to be a woman for plot reasons, it gets a little uncomfortable. Partially just because it's kind of the cringe factor of, oh my God, this person clearly doesn't know what they're doing. Having had kind of a lived experience that's somewhat analogous to what they're going through it's Mm. like oh no don't do that don't do that either no this is not how this works and there's also just the fact that you know it's obviously intended to be awkward and that's what's being played for laughs i'll be honest i'm not a fan of awkward derived humor in general it just makes me anxious particularly in this situation it was just a little odd waiting for the other shoe to drop as it were because Inevitably, that's going to happen. I also do find it interesting, and I mean, I'm sure they did this so the character would still be identifiable, where you can apparently get, like, a complete sex change in, like, a few hours at Deep Space Nine, but it won't change your voice at all, even though that is something we can actually do now. Yes. Well, yes. And it's, there's a, there's a lot to dig into, but particularly, it's not, like, in the reality of the episode, it is not just external surgical changes. It is apparently a holistic, including hormonal. And I don't know how I f- like part of the jokes were like Quark's having mood swings and, and getting all like emotional because of the hormones. And I don't know how I feel about that because on one hand, that's really stereotypical. On the other hand, getting walled by that much estrogen in that short a span, just having like a change in your in the balance of your hormones that rapidly can 
actually give you pretty bad mood swings. So it's like, listen, we've all been through second puberty. Yeah, yeah, it it, it is a thing that happens. So I don't know how I feel about that. Circling back around, I actually would love to talk just briefly about rules of acquisition because, as you said, it, it, it's a much more straightforward kind of episode. And I've always had mixed feelings about it because, personally, I have never enjoyed woman dresses up as man to do whatever storylines. I think in large part because the ultimate reaffirmation of her being a woman always made me uncomfortable. You know, I could totally see that. I was kind of wondering if, you know, our reactions to these episodes would kind of parallel each other, that rules of acquisition might have like a deeper significance to you in terms of your reaction to it whereas you know profit and lace elicits a stronger response in me because that's like hitting closer to home to our own personal experiences but yeah i can totally see that i do want to note i also find profit and lace very uncomfortable okay maybe it's not just me then maybe it's just a really uncomfortable episode I mean, it's a very uncomfortable episode in general, but I, I was watching it and I was thinking like, maybe I should have warned Tessa because I don't, I like I am uncomfortable about it, but it doesn't hit me deep in the gut. I kind of figured it would be like this because, you know, it's television for the 90s and while, you know, Deep Space Nine was extraordinarily progressive for its time, it's just cis people, it's, it's one of those situations that cis people just generally don't know how to write in a non-awkward way. Yeah. What actually really interests me about Rules of Acquisition is what it, well, A, it's so wild revisiting like the beginning of the second season, knowing how all of these characters and relationships develop through the rest of the season. Because like Rom is a completely different character in season two than in season six. Yeah, I noticed. And I also noticed that I think this episode might be the first time they actually mentioned the Dominion. Yeah, I think, yes. Which is one of the great things about DS9 is that they weave it in. Like, we don't really get into the Dominion in, like, a real way until basically season three, but they're dropping these crumbs left and right way in the beginning, which is fantastic. Love Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Love Deep Space Nine. But what's, what's really interesting to me about Rules of Acquisition is also just what it says about Ferengi sexuality, because all of the Ferengi men keep repeatedly asserting that they want a submissive woman, they want a woman who doesn't wear clothes, etc., etc. But whenever we see a Ferengi character express sexual interest in someone, it is a very, like, assertive, confident woman. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, admittedly, we don't see that many Ferengi females to begin with, so maybe, like, that's part of it, but... Yeah, like, literally every Ferengi relationship that we see, Quark and Pell... Quark and Jedzia, Quark and the Cardassian woman he has another um, episode with, like all of these other people. And then Rom ends up falling in love with Lita. And then even Grand Nagazek is interested in Kira, is interested in Jedzia, is interested in Ishka. Right. We never actually see a Ferengi man show real sexual or romantic interest in anyone except for these very self-possessed, even sometimes aggressive female figures. All of these Ferengi men are saying one thing with their mouths and then saying an entirely different thing with everything else about them. And that's fascinating to me. I don't know that I have a lot to say about it, except that just another fascinating aspect of heterosexuality to really dig your hands into. Yeah, you know, you were saying that. I'm kind of like, I wonder if like this is 
like maybe like an unintentional metaphor for how toxic masculinity works. Ferengi are a perfect opportunity for some real homoerotic homosociality because they are essentially spending their lives in environments exclusively male. And yet we never even see a whisper of homoeroticism from any of the Ferengi. And is this because it's the 90s or is it because the DS9 writers lacked the imagination? Who knows? Yeah, I, you know, I, again, I, I've seen some stuff from Deep Space Nine that makes me suggest that it wasn't for lack of imagination. Fair. Any, For example, anytime Garrick and Bashir are on the same screen. <laughs> yes. God bless you, Andrew Robinson, giving us all that magnificent gift. I hope he's having a great day. So anyways, yeah, the Ferengi don't have the barest hint of anything aside from very, very constrained heterosexuality. Which is truly wild because that's the thing is that like because pell does kiss quark and his reaction is very gay panic yep the final thing that i want to say about rules of acquisition really the character design for the dozai is bad but i appreciate that everybody got to have a tit window i actually noticed that i i like the dozai face paint i will be honest with you i don't know if i'm sold on the costuming but yes they were at least consistent about it they all got a cleavage window and I'm really happy for them. I also particularly enjoyed the um, female docile like, representative, but that's mostly just because she gave me very, very strong step-on-me-mommy energy. Yeah, I feel like that's a lesbian thing because I had no reaction to her at all. It is. So, <laughs> profit and lice. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. The f the first, the most straightforward thing I would say is it is wild because season six is famously such a good season of Deep Space Nine. And it has some, literally some of the all-time best episodes. Like it has in the Pale Moonlight, which is regularly brought up as like the high watermark of Star Trek. It also has Far Beyond the Stars, which is just masterpiece of an episode. So season six has some of the, like, it has some of the greatest Star Trek episodes, not just greatest episodes of Deep Space Nine, but some of the all-time greatest episodes of Star Trek. And then it also has this nightmare. The other thing that really struck me, and this also showed up a little bit in Rules of Acquisition, but it wasn't quite as over the top, was the so much of what the Ferengi did, and I mean, I know it's supposed to make them, like, unsympathetic characters, but... So much of even what Quark does would not stand a chance in the sort of post-Me Too climate. Well, exactly. And because it's further interesting because we've literally had this addressed on Deep Space Nine before of one of Quark's employees going to Cisco saying, Quark is asking me to perform sexual favors and Cisco being like, not on my space station. And so I believe that Quark would continue trying to do that, but that it serves as sort of the capper on each end of the episode is like, aren't we better than this by this point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and especially since this whole episode has been, you know, supposedly a growing experience and a learning experience for Quark, and it's just like, we should be past this. It's, you know, yeah. it's six seasons in. It's very nearly seven seasons in because it's at the end of the season six. So that's one, that's one thing. <laughs> and then also, this episode has some of the all-time laziest naming in the entire season, like, in the entire show. First of all, Lumba is barely a joke. Yeah. So, okay. But then also, your very alluring employee is literally named Allura. Allura. Yep. Okay, sure. 
They they really phoned that one in. They've they phoned a lot of this episode in. This is really the other thing, is what on earth was just why would you do this? Yeah, I it's again, it's like one of those things that I can understand the impetus of, oh, you know, let's put this misogynistic character in a new environment where he has to reevaluate what he thinks he knows about women. It's a very tired trope, but it's one people use. But it's, again, one of the ones that cis people, by and large, aren't good at handling in a way that isn't super cringeworthy. I really wish we had, like, an elder trans on this episode who could give us more context on what what it was like being trans in the late 90s. Because I haven't experienced that, and you haven't experienced that. Even more incredibly, I could imagine... Well, I don't really have to imagine because Seth MacFarlane's This is Basically Star Trek, except they wouldn't let me make a Star Trek show. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Orville, yeah. Yeah, I haven't watched it because I don't like Seth MacFarlane. Although, tragically, the woman who played Cassidy Yates is on that show. Mm. What a... You know? I mean, as Missy Elliott said once, girls, girls, get that cash. (laughs) So I understand. But... What what a real step down from the greatest Star Trek of all time to Seth MacFarlane. Right. R.I.P. But I remember reading an article about an episode which had an all-male species. Yep, I've seen the episode, actually. Have you? Yep. Is it bad? Um... Maybe we should, just to finish the contextualization, the premise of the episode is that there is a species that is all male, and if a female individual is born, they perform basically sex reassignment surgery so that they maintain the maleness of their species. And it's it's implied that females have periodically popped up within their species for a long time, but for social reasons, you know, they just kind of got marginalized and eventually, you know, we're all reassigned to male at birth. It wasn't as bad as I was expecting it to be because it was also never played for laughs. It was played as a very complex and complicated and morally ambiguous subject and, you know, something that is worth a lot of consideration and serious thought, you know, about is this the right thing to do or not? Yes, we it's what we've always done, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's what we should be doing. One of the, the reveals in the episode, it turns out one of their greatest philosophers is not only still alive, but also was secretly female and had like been living as a hermit, which was weird. But, you know, she did show up and, like, school the rest of them. I will say, sometimes when I try to imagine myself living in the past, assuming a lot about gender, but assuming that I would be essentially as trans as I am now, I always imagine the best-case scenario of me becoming basically a hermit philosopher monk. So I get it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's how that particular character had survived in their society. It's just by publishing all these books under her name, but never appearing in public, so no one knew. And, you know, of course she shows up and says, I know you all think women are inferior and, you know, should be something to erase, but if you'd done that, you would have erased me, and then you wouldn't have all these books, and you should stop and think about that. It was done pretty heavy-handedly, but at the same time, at the end, they ultimately give their infant, who is female, like the reassignment surgery. And you get the sense that the even the episode isn't entirely sure what it was trying to do with that. Mm. I guess it's supposed to like it. You know, it's clearly trying to make a point, and that you know maybe this isn't a good thing. But they went ahead and did it anyways. And yeah, it was strange. 
Well, it's interesting also, and I, I would be, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that that has relevancy to trans stuff, but also, of course, relevancy to intersex stuff. Yeah, very much so. And the ongoing human rights abuse of quote-unquote corrective surgeries on intersex infants. It feels like a very 90s episode, but at the same time, it I think it could have been on TV as recently as two or three years ago. Oh, definitely. Because I, when did you start transitioning? Um, 2014. Okay. I started in 2011. I think we're in sort of a, a similar cohort of we started transitioning right before and it's not completely accurate, but Time did have that cover with LaVorne. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bless her name, of the trans tipping point. And I think that was in like, I can't remember exactly when that was, but... Sometime between 2013 and 2015. Yeah, and I saved that cover and I had it up beside my desk in my apartment at university for several years. I love LaVorne Cox. She's not a scientist, as far as I know, but please come on the podcast. Yes, we, w- we would be delighted to have you. We'll make an exception. <laughs> I love Lauren Cox. Right. So we are in kind of a similar cohort of transitioning right on the cusp of like a really huge cultural change, both in terms of acknowledgement of trans people and general competency levels of understanding, which is weird to think about because this does feel like a very old fashioned kind of episode. But at the same time, until very, very recently, TV was in kind of a, a point of stasis regarding not, well, often being actively hateful, but if not actively hateful, then extremely misguided about trans people. Yes. And is and is literally only like now that we're getting to the point where you can have more than a singular trans person on a TV show. Yeah. Including in Star Trek. But Star Trek now has two trans people, so great job. Although, admittedly, one of them is playing a dead character. <laughs> What can you do? So, profit and lace. I think an an interesting question would be, is there anything that you think is really interesting and valuable about this episode? Um, not really. <laughs> I agree. I did find that Nova, before he made, like, aggressive sexual advances, was a fun character. Yes. So... That was nice. And I think if there's one tiny, grubby little jewel that needs to be polished, and once you polish it, it'll, like, lose most of its mass, but it'll have a little sparkle, was Lita saying very affectionately to Rom that he's complicated. (laughs) I did notice that, yeah. I think that was a sweet little moment. Other than that, though. Yeah, even the lesson of, oh... Ferengi women should be allowed in society because they'll expand the consumer base. And it's kind of like, yes. Yeah. Anyone who's ever participated in the economy would know that. Well, A, yes, it's a very duh kind of moment. And then B, it's a very like girl boss, lean in feminism approach. Although, I mean, admittedly, that is on brand for the Ferengi. Yeah, exactly. I do. Because that's the thing is that in Deep Space Nine, I do find the Ferengi are often used to great effect. First of all, Comrade Rom and the episode where he leads a strike at Quark's Bar and they f- all the employees form a union. That's a very good episode. Rom literally quotes the Communist Manifesto. Rom, can we talk about this? There's only one thing I have to say to you. 
workers of the world, unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. What's happened to you? <laughs> and, it's, and then Miles literally tries to beat up Worf for crossing the picket line and going into Gork's bar. <laughs> because the O'Briens are union men. God bless. So that's a very good episode. And then also there is a time when Quark remarks to, it might be Cisco. It's a human character. I know why you don't like the Ferengi. Oh, I know what you're thinking. The line you're thinking of. Yeah. You used to be like us. It, well, it's not only that you used to be like us, but you know, we never had wars the way you did. Yeah, sure. We're greedy, but we're civilized about it. Humans used to be a lot worse than the Ferengi. Slavery, concentration camps, interstellar wars. We have nothing in our past that approaches that kind of barbarism. You see, we're nothing like you. We're better. So I, I think that the Ferengi can be used to great effect, but I think... The politics of gender when it comes to Frankie are often lacking, shall we say. Yeah, and I mean, admittedly, it doesn't help the position they start out from of literally they expect women to be naked and submissive. I know Star Trek plays a lot with comparing different cultures and, you know, sometimes that's for effect, but I really don't understand the effect they're trying to get other than maybe justifying why we haven't seen a female Frankie so far. Yeah. Well, and it also brings up a question of, because I think, circling back around to my grievances with Discovery, which I understand, like, Aaron likes Discovery, you know. I know that there are Discovery fans in who listens to us, and in the world, and they're valid, and I validate them, and I affirm them, and I respect them. However, one of the problems that I have with the glossy, as the modern, like, oh, we have money now aesthetic, right. that Star Trek is very silly. This is true. This is true. It's very silly. Like, even at its most serious, you still have to disc... You can't... When I am watching or reading something fictional, I never forget that it's fictional. It's not a problem for me, and this is probably part of why I like musical theater. Because I, you know, I always know that there's artifice, so you might as well make the artifice really engaging. Right. And so I think something falls apart when it looks real, but it is still so silly. You know, I think you're really onto something with that. I well, I love to hear that. Similarly, like, I believe that there is probably some form of life somewhere else, just statistically, right? right. The universe is huge. But the likelihood that they would be bipedal and that we would be able to easily translate our languages to each other and share a common enough system of values that we could form an intergalactic federation. It stretches believability. Yes. Let's put it that way. And so fundamentally, when we talk about aliens in science fiction, and particularly in Star Trek, we're not talking about aliens. We're talking about ourselves. Right. It's always been very allegorical. It's always been very allegorical. And I don't remember where I was initially going with this. Oh, here it is. If we take it within the universe, it does not make any sense that this would be such a novel circumstance. They have hyper complex and advanced surgical tools. And this is the first time anybody has thought of doing this. 
Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. But from the perspective of this is being written by people in America in the 90s, then you get into a lot of stuff about, like, well, what are they actually saying here about gender and biological essentialism? Right. I definitely got... There were a lot of mixed messages in that respect from this episode. Yes. Because, like, part of it was obviously, well, women can be just as clever as men, yada, yada, yada. Although they kind of subverted that by having Quark do it. But also the whole thing, oh, the hormones are making me emotional. On the other hand, like we discussed, suddenly altering your hormonal balance can lead to mood swings. So it's not like they're wrong. But it's... I think it's weird that they emphasized it as much as they did. I mean, it's a very lazy, like, hack 90s humor moment. Yeah, yeah. I think, really, ultimately, this episode is extremely affirming of a trans-medicalist point of view. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And for all, the, for all the cis people in the audience, so maybe just my dad, trans-medicalism is basically a perspective on transness that is very affirming of gender being binary and being explicitly and inextricably tied to sex, where the only valid trans people are old school transsexuals of, I am holistically dysphoric about my body and I want to holistically change it to conform to a very binaristic definition of this sex has these characteristics and the sex has these characteristics and gender maps onto that perfectly. If it's not already abundantly clear, this is not a podcast that affirms transmedicalism. I have no interest in that. Nope. Wouldn't it be such a twist if you were like, actually, I am true scum? Yeah, no. But I th- Because ultimately, <laughs> there is the little capper on the episode where Quark has to literally derobe, where I assume they see whatever Ferengi female genitals yep, look Yep, like. uh, that was definitely uncomfortable. Yeah. And then Nova is like, well, it, you know, good enough for me. Which explicit, intentionally or not, felt a little like the moment at the end of Some Like It Hot. No, that I, I was wondering if that was a callback to that, because that definitely reminded me of that. Right? But you don't understand, Osgood! Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. Because Nova was basically saying, I don't care what you have been. I care only what you are now. Which would be nice if Nova had not just attempted sexual assault. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, ups and downs in this episode. Because here's the other thing, here's the other thing, is that this gets brought up sometimes when people talk about the impact of increasing medical resources and advances on the meaning and the experience in the community of being trans, where if we have all of these kids who essentially can get blockers early enough or not even need blockers, but affirm themselves when they're seven, and then when they get to the point where they would start puberty just start on quote-unquote cross-sex hormones and then just develop from the jump affirming you know their perceived gender in that way and then what does that do to quote-unquote the trans experience and the trans community i've actually had some discussions with friends about that you know if we are sort of a you know if we're part of a sort of an ephemeral or transitory generation that you know, the experiences we've had of living part of your adult life as one gender and then the rest of it as another is something that isn't necessarily going to happen in the future because of that. 
kids trans kids developing as the gender that they identify as from the start you know i don't know i mean with some people i suspect it may always just take them a little while since i don't know i didn't figure out i was trans until i was 26 you know yeah and i had trans friends so it wasn't for lack of information it just took me a long time to put all the pieces together because i figured out that i was trans when i was 17 but i i had read a couple of books about trans people i like knew about trans people and i actively was like i don't like those trans people (laughs) because i had very rad fem misunderstandings of what it meant to be trans right i was like i'm mad about these people who want to affirm gender stereotypes i'm a girl and i hate all girly stuff and i wear men's clothes and i don't like being called a girl and i don't want to be a girl and i feel really weird about being a girl interested in boys and that all means that trans people are wrong. Right. It didn't. But because I had feelings that I now link to like gender dysphoria, like an existential terror at first puberty before I went through it. But I had no framework right. to interpret those feelings. And so I ended up going down entirely the wrong path until I then found trans people online who had common experiences with me when I was 17. And I was like, oh, oh. Yeah. That's some, you know. I kind of had a similar experience of discovering that people, you know, their stories sounded extraordinarily similar to mine, sometimes even using the exact same language. Mm. And that's kind of what cinched it. My point is, well, yes, there may be a few people who it always takes a little while longer to figure out. Just because identity can be hard sometimes, we will see sort of a shift, at least for, I guess, more binary identified trans people towards, you know, you only go through one puberty, but it's the right one. Yeah, because I always have mixed feelings about it because, like, the the part of my brain that cares about other people is, like, of, yeah, of course, yeah, yes. If we can avoid the trauma of an unwanted puberty for anybody, then duh, right? But on the other hand, it does get to that sort of feeling of the very particular experience that you've had that then draws you into community with other people You know, being ephemeral. I don't necessarily worry too much about that personally, mostly because, I mean, yes, it is a shared experience. On the other hand, the stuff that I usually bond with over friends who are trans is like deeper than that, Mm. you know, just because there are some things we've all experienced regardless of when we transition, because I do have some friends who transitioned early, teenagers or, or younger. There's still a lot of common reference points despite that. But and the other thing is, of course, knowing from my own experience, had I known I was trans at age 13, I would have wanted to get on blockers immediately and probably would have gone catonic otherwise. Like in some respects, the fact I was so ignorant of what I was experiencing not being the norm and what other possibilities could be out there, it was almost kind of a shield for me. Mm. So yeah, if kids don't have that, I definitely want them have access to medical transition if they want it i'm so mad at everybody in the uk who's trying to ruin trans kids lives oh yeah well actually not just trans kids lives they're apparently making noises about um it's such a like how people under 25 shouldn't have access to medical transition god i'm just mad i'm just so mad about it all the time all the time just what and people have to wait for like five years to get off the waiting list. Yep. Unbelievable. It's just absolute cruelty. There's so much cruelty around. When you could be cool and watch DS9 instead. Exactly. But not this episode, because you might get some weird ideas. Yeah, yeah. The other ones, though, definitely check out Far Beyond the Stars. That one's great. As I've said before, Avery Brooks, despite being cis, is allowed on this podcast. Hmm. If any, If anybody who's been in Star Trek wants... I, I mean, I don't want to make unilateral decisions. Oh, I'm fine with this. 
Yeah, if, if we can get a Star, a Star Trek cast member on here, sure. Go for it. Yes. Anyway, so it's very, basically, it's very affirming of transmedical. And so basically the, the end point is that it's, it's, it's interesting as sort of the premise for thought ex- experiment about what it would be like being trans in the 24th century or whenever they are. I never know because they don't say the date, like they change to star dates and those are meaningless. But it, what it would be like, because that's the other thing, is that to access this kind of stuff, you would need to be able to understand yourself as somebody who would need access to it. Right, exactly. And then that brings up a lot more questions about how do you realize that? Because I probably would have gone through my whole life without realizing that the misery and alienation I felt from my body had any kind of a solution if I had not found other people whose experiences overlapped so meaningfully with mine. Right. And so then if you create the situation where people who have gone through this effectively are 100% unambiguously assimilatable, then there is less of that kind of community of generalized information. You know, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be an issue Mm. because for no other reason than I have a lot of trans friends who are writers. They write the sort of stuff that they read when they were younger because they didn't understand what was going on specifically to like offer a guide or a reassurance that hey this is might be what these feelings are having mean and this is what you can do about it well and the sort of the threat of full assimilation also ignores non-binary people yeah yeah who i assume will be around i don't see any reason why they wouldn't yeah because that's the other thing is that the very strict only two genders and nothing else sort of cultural norm of Star Trek is not a reflection of reality now or through like most of human history no. where there have always been people. There has been a more expansive gendered system across cultures across time than like 90s American TV is willing to acknowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. So I will... I mean, it's interesting also because the presentation of a, and I'm going to use the term sex change because that's that's really what they're doing in this episode. Yeah. Because it, it's presented as an extremely binary thing. And then circling back around, not only to non-binary people, but to even many binary people, sort of that notion of you have to change absolutely everything. Right. Or Or it doesn't count. Yeah. Or it doesn't count is unappealing to a lot of people, like right. particularly often non-binary people. Right, exactly. Like, mm, you know, a lot going on in this episode. Is there anything we haven't touched on? Not that I can really think. We talked about the voice thing, which again I still find hilarious. Yeah. Um, like even now we have tracheal shaving. Oh yeah. Well, no, we we have like voice surgeries. I I mean they can be sometimes a little hit or miss, but have friends who have had it and they sound great. I have such a void of knowledge of a lot of like the other side of the aisle type experience cuz essentially medically transitioning if you're going on testosterone is just just a process of being very lazy. Well, I mean, you do have to deal with top surgery, which so that's like yeah. not trivial. No. But a lot, because, I mean, that's really the one of the essential differences in experience, I think, is that, like, a lot of the recommendations for passing, which, of course, is a fraught concept, we don't have time. Yeah, that's a whole other episode. It's, a whole, it's, a, it's like five other episodes, at least. But the whole concept of passing, a lot of the recommendations for men are, men are gross, 
And they don't take care of themselves. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've actually, there's been a meme for a long time that, you know, testosterone is more effective than estrogen. And I've actually seen people, trans men specifically, argue, no, it really isn't. It's just the standards for men are so much lower than they are for women that that's why it seems stronger. Like, we don't have to do more stuff, basically. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of traits that are more, that sort of carry more weight in strangers' perceptions than a lot of other ones. Because it often gets brought up that trans men who talk about it being so much easier to pass as a trans man often are smaller-chested individuals. Because if you have a prominent enough chest, a lot of the time, people will interpret you as a woman regardless of what else you do. Right. Like, I have friends, like, have had beards and still gotten misgendered because they had... I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And it also just depends on... Like, I get misgendered less in Arizona than I did in D.C. I could believe that as well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just contextual. As Judith Butler said, to quote another, not as staunch, not as impressive a philosopher as Missy Elliott, but up there, gender is performance. This does lead us into a new sort of question that we're going to add to the rotation of questions that our guests can answer, which is, are there any advances in like medical transition technologies that you think about that you would like to exist? If we're talking about like near term, you know, they've been working on vaginal transplant or actually no cloned vaginal tissue for GRS for trans women. It's still very much in the developmental stage. And they've also talked about uterus transplants, although that's, it's been done in cis women, but it's probably still quite a ways off for trans women. One thing I've heard a little bit about that I would sign up for, like, in a heartbeat, though, was this idea of you get some gonadal tissue, testicle or ovarian, depending on what you are after. You wrap it in a semi-permeable membrane, so blood can perfuse, but antibodies won't, and then you implant it, and it basically acts as an in vitro hormone pump. I have no idea how like actually well that would work because I feel like the chance of rejection is still going to be super high. But I've, it's an idea I've seen kicked around, possibly by people who don't actually know biology. <laughs> yeah, I am somebody who knows biology, but not this kind of biology. So I don't know. My wife is, is shaking her head. And since she's the one who actually <laughs> has a medical science degree, I'm going to assume it's probably not a good idea. How dare she? Mine, very similarly, is the idea not of an implantation of somebody else's gonadal tissue, but whether it would be possible to sort of flick a genetic switch in actually existing gonads and then like... Yes, that they've done that in mice. So yes, I can't remember the gene off the top of my head, but they've well, done that in mice. Why did the mice get to have all the fun? And this is probably more relevant for like me... Because this is the thing, and not to, I don't know how personal we want to get on this podcast, but I'm not especially interested in the reality of external testicles, because frankly, I think it sounds like a hassle. It is. I'll be honest with you. I believe you. But, because this is sort of the eternal conflict with whether to get, and I don't know what the medical term is now, but what I have heard referred to, I think erroneously, as a full hysterectomy where you remove not just the uterus, but also the ovaries. Because here's the thing. Do I want ovaries? No. No. But 
do I want to have no organs producing quote unquote sex hormones and then have my bones fall apart? Also, no. As someone who is post gonadal, it is a bit of a hassle. I actually have to supplement a small amount of testosterone because my body just does not produce it anymore. In addition to the estrogen I take, which I think is very ironic. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that I already apply testosterone every day of my life. Like I'm in that habit. But I have absolutely no faith. Well, I used to have a little bit of faith in the state, and now after a pandemic, I have no faith in the state. And I don't want to be subject to the wild whims of the American medical institutions as to whether or not my bones are going to fall apart. Right. No, I get that. On the understanding that lots of people don't have gonads anymore, cis and trans, it's like, I don't want to fear monger too much about it. Like, your bones aren't literally going to break apart. But- I do also have generalized anxiety disorder. Well, and the other thing is, even without your bones falling apart, it took me about a... mm, Let's see here. I had GRS in April of 2017, and it took me six, seven months before I started doing the testosterone thing. And turns out not having any testosterone at all in your body is not pleasant even if like it wasn't to the point that my bones were falling apart or anything obviously that's not true for everyone i know some people who had had no problem at all but for me like it was having minor but annoying effects um you know my anxiety level was higher i had less energy my nails and hair completely went to hell hurt you used to be so swole and then you just lost it oh no that happened long long ago but yes (laughs) that is one of the things that I enjoy about testosterone is I often wish I had a platform to talk to the youths, not because I think I have anything particularly interesting to say, except for one thing, which is that it's very easy. And I got into this mindset of sort of catastrophizing about the limited timeline of effects of going on hormones where I had it in my head when I started, okay, I have three years oh, yeah, for major no. changes. And after that, my body is just going to be static, basically. But the reality of the human body, which is its joy and its downfall, is that it, like everything else in the entire universe, is constantly changing. And going on hormones not only causes a cascade of short-term changes, but it directs the path of long-term changes. Yeah, absolutely. When I was at like that three-year end of going on testosterone, I felt a lot of hopelessness of like, I'm not masculine enough. I don't have enough facial hair. I still don't have enough facial hair, but that's probably a genetic thing. But like like, I didn't start getting chest hair until I had been on testosterone for like six years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's about right. And that's just, you know, that's just the rabbit. Puberty takes a while. Puberty takes a while. Yeah. And I wish that that were emphasized more in, so you want to start hormones literature, because I didn't hear hide nor hair of that when I started. Yeah. And it did put me in this, like, catastrophizing mindset of, I got three years, and then if I'm not immediately, like, head bear of Bear Mountain, my life is meaningless. I mean, yeah, and like on the other side of it, I've had occasional episodes of breast growth periodically for the last six going on seven years. The most recent one was like earlier this summer. So, and you know, for me, you know, I had the opposite of going from being a perfect rectangle of 34, 34, 34 to, God, I'm 38, 33, 40 now, I think. But it took like years to get there. This is the thing about me is that I am a small person. 
but I am a barrel-chested individual. Like, my pre-T under-bust chest measurement was 32 inches, and now it's like 39. Yep. Part of that is also that I've done aerial, and I've got these big, beautiful lats. <laughs> Just gorgeous lats. And I've got these little... Because right after I got top surgery... Because you know that there are the drains that are put in. Yeah. And so I've got these little little scars of where the drains were that kind of look like USB plugs. And they're less prominent now, which is a little bit disappointing, but I really liked having them when they were more prominent because it made me feel like a very advanced Android. As it should. I mean, that's the dream, really, right? That's the real future of transition. Forget human body changes, robot body implants. If people want to find me online, I am on Twitter at CockroachArls. And I'm on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-T. The show is on Twitter at A-S-A-B-Pod or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, asabpodcast.com. And until next time, keep on sciencing.